0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Mapping Evil with Mike King. Today we're bringing you a case update on the Lafferty Brothers. Before jumping into this episode, you may want to check out episode eight of season one, Plotting the Path from Prophet to Predator. This episode contains content of a highly graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The material covered is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, Every effort has been made to show respect to the victims and their families. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is making a difference in crime analysis and public safety, head to Esri Australia. That's esriaustralia.com.au slash crime. Case update. Ritual murder. Confessions of a predator.
1: Dan Lafferty and his brother are killers. They should never see the light of freedom. Ron developed this belief that he was a prophet of his God.
0: I'm Tori Shepard, and this is Mapping Evil with Mike King. Convicted murderer Ron Lafferty believed he heard the voice of God.
1: The Lord has commanded that their throats be slashed. And it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession. First, thy brother's wife, Brenda, and her baby, then Chloe Lowe, and then Richard Stowe. It was then that Ron declared that he was, quote, the voice of the Lord, and that Dan was the, quote, arm of the Lord.
0: In this case
2: update, you hear from the murderers themselves. I'm not ashamed of it, I'm not embarrassed by it. To me, there was no emotional involvement in it.
1: The most important thing in this story is not them, it's the victim and the victims in this case.
0: Let's travel back to the 24th of July in 1984. It was a very dark day in Utah. This is the story of Dan and Ron Lafferty's ritualistic murder spree. They left their sister-in-law and her 14-month-old baby dead. The Lafferty brothers claim to be prophets of a God, they believe sanctioned murder. They would commit the crime in a quiet neighbourhood inside the confines of their brother's home. As usual, I'm joined by Mike King. He's a former violent crime investigator, world-class criminal profiler, and nemesis to the sick and the deviant. Mike, you've investigated religious fanatics for most of your career, and, as it turns out, you spent hundreds of hours interviewing these two killers from their prison cells. Tell us about that, Mike.
1: Well, Tori... I. First, I want you to know, it's great to be with you on another episode. I'm gonna share with you some of the interviews that I had with both Dan and Ron Lafferty. Ron is now deceased, he died in prison. And Dan recently gave me permission to share the interviews I conducted with him 30 years ago and as recently as just a few weeks ago. They come from interviews inside of the prison and I think you're gonna find them to be compelling and a little bit chilling.
0: Mike, as always, I just adore doing these sessions with you. We go to these really dark places, but they are fascinating. I'm a, I'm girding my loins and preparing myself to hear the voices of these guys from prison. Before we do that, though, let's just revisit the Lafferty brothers and their unusual upbringing. Let's kind of set the scene. So they grew up in this little community south of Salt Lake City. The family was pretty big. There were six boys, two girls... The father's name was Watson, and he was a pretty strict guy. Mike, you mentioned that Dan once told you that his father, who was a chiropractor, was abusive and strict, and that he took religious doctrine to an extreme and used it as a control mechanism within his home, and he argued all the time with Claudine, his wife, and would often direct his anger with her onto the children and the family pets. Is it right that Dan told you he actually watched his father beat a family dog to death with a baseball bat?
1: Yeah, that's correct, Tori. I mean, can you imagine what growing up in a household like this must have been like for these kids? Not only did they learn manipulative behaviors watching these things go on, they also learned the differences of power and control and and learned how to gain control sometimes through violence.
0: Yeah, I remember the phrase, hurt people hurt people. So these brothers, they definitely had an unconventional and a pretty violent upbringing, But how did they go from that to believing that Ron was a prophet of God?
1: Yeah, think back to when we first covered the Lafferty brothers in season one. As these two grew older, and of course with their brothers, they continued to live in this environment. Ron begins to develop a belief that he truly is a prophet of this God he believes in.
0: Right, and then his brother Dan's just totally on bored with this, he thinks his brother's the prophet of God and the two of them then leave their religion, start their own church and they even grew, you know, these big beards like, like the prophets evolved from the Bible.
1: Yeah, it's really something. And you think about it. His brother Ron was so crafty in making Dan believe that he had an important role to play. Ron being the leader and Dan being his right hand man. And together they create this academy of sorts where they teach other men who have these wacky, like-minded thoughts about how they could eventually become prophets too, a place where they could come and train, but most importantly, a place where Ron could manipulate their minds as well.
0: Right. So they've broken away from the mainstream, they've started a church, but kind of sounds a bit like a cult. What happened next?
1: Ron married and he soon began a family, but he believed in polygamy, or, or at least this idea of having multiple wives. His bizarre beliefs had him in trouble with the church that he belonged to, and his wife didn't agree with it. Dan also married and espoused similar kinds of beliefs, but as the two boys grew older, they picked up many of their father's idiosyncrasies, according to Dan. Now, I don't know any other way to say this, than they were just plain weird about some things. For instance, instead of buying baby food, Dan would chew food up into a mush, get this, and then spit it into the mouths of his children to eat. Well, as the brothers took their fanaticism to the extreme, they continued to feed into each other. They stopped paying taxes, and they even quit obeying things like traffic laws. Ron actually successfully ran for city council, but he thought the government was still too involved in people's lives. In fact, he was so far to the edge that he refused to use city garbage services opting to haul his own trash to the dump. He lived off the grid before living off the grid was popular. Dan's focus on polygamy intensified and he attempted to marry his own 14-year-old daughter as part of this fundamentalist belief system. Well, along the way, he became angry with the criminal justice system, and he became so angry that he tried to run for Utah County Sheriff. Thankfully, he lost. Now, Ron believed in polygamy, but he knew that the church he belonged to didn't approve of it, and his wife certainly didn't agree to practice it. So instead, He became a writer of religious beliefs and interpretations of scripture. As the church they belonged to became aware of their bizarre uh, personal and religious beliefs, they were eventually excommunicated. It was shortly after that that their wives filed for divorce.
0: I've I've got to say, not a, not a huge surprise. The wives maybe not not being on board with their new <laughs> their, their new church. So that's the point when Ron declares he is the voice of the Lord and that Dan is the arm of the Lord. And I know you said that Dan was really you know thrilled with the position of power that he felt he he now had, and Ron was angry at his wife for leaving him. But actually he was kind of angry at Brenda, his sister-in-law, because she'd supported his wife and then he was also unhappy with the church members who supported his wife. So the two Lafferty brothers, they're preaching this like really destructive doctrine to their friends and family and they also start to badmouth Brenda and other members of the church. So they're setting up this division and, and Brenda, who, sorry, she is the wife of the youngest brother, Alan, just to take you back to that, she banned her husband from having any kind of relationship with the two brothers because, um, well, maybe she was a smart lady and she didn't really like what they were getting into. And so then, of course, Ron and Dan prayed for inspiration on how to handle Brenda and the God they're worshipping. I'm doing those air quotes. (laughs) Mike gave them that inspiration. So Brenda, Alan's wife, smart lady, college graduate, did not like what the brothers were getting up to, so what did the brothers decide to do about it?
1: Yeah, isn't this interesting, and isn't it a, a normal component of cult behavior that as there's this process of separation from people who disagree with your thinking, and you start to only think about and talk with people who believe the same things you do, then it's really easy to start coming up with revelation that fits the narrative that you want to get across. And their narrative is that Brenda is a stumbling block. She's created division in the family. She's ruined their personal lives. So you see this personal anger that they're expressing through what they call is revelation. And now they start to uh, separate the family, bring their brothers in and find this common ground belief that Ron actually is a prophet of God. And so by March of 1984, just a few months before the murders, Ron records what he calls the removal revelation. It's documented on a yellow legal pad and later collected as evidence, but it's the revelation that gives them the authority to take life. He claimed it was revelation directly from God, and the first place he shared it was with his brothers and other close confidants at this school of the prophets they'd created. The word sent shivers down the spines of everyone in attendance, except Dan. The revelation read, quote, "'Thus saith the Lord unto my servants, the prophets, "'It is my will and commandment "'that ye remove the following individuals "'in order that my work might go forward, "'for they have become obstacles in my path, "'and I will not allow my work to be stopped. First, thy brother's wife, Brenda, and her baby, then Chloe Lowe, and then Richard Stowe, and it is my will that they be removed in rapid succession. Close quote. And with his premeditation of murder clearly on the table, he began planning. Now it would take almost two months until Ron was angry enough to pull off the four murders that he believed that should happen. The brothers started getting rid of personal possessions and laying the groundwork for this crime. Let's listen as Dan describes why he agreed to speak to investigators about this case and what led up to the murders.
2: I'd had a premonition that there was just something that needed to be done and I sold all my weapons in a garage sale and incidentally, from that garage sale, my brother, took some of the money and he bought some items one of which was the knife which ultimately was used to uh, to take the lives of these two individuals so on the 24th of July okay I'll get into this is getting pretty this will be pretty intense now so just kind of brace yourself if you need to I'm not ashamed of it I'm not embarrassed by it and I may speak of it so calmly that uh, it might unnerve you a little bit but to me there was no emotional involvement and I in fact well I'll tell you I'll describe how it happened and It is a phenomenon that I don't understand completely, Uh, it raises a lot of interesting questions in my own mind about God.
1: Dan was the only brother who remained faithful to Ron's delusions, but he was accompanied by two newcomers. Charles, a guy that went by Chip Carnes of New Mexico, and a guy named Ricky Martin Knapp of Wichita, Kansas. The other four brothers didn't participate in the murders. And I, I still don't have a good grasp on what they knew or what they didn't know about things. But when the night before the slaying, he said that the four men, Ron, Dan, Ricky, and carn sat in a Bible discussion meeting in Ron and Dan's mother, Claudine's home. During the discussion, Dan asked Ron again, why can't we just shoot Brenda? to which Ron replied, quote, the Lord has commanded that their throats be slashed, close quote. Well, I've never heard why July 24th was the day selected for the murders. It happened early in the morning hours as the four men loaded into Lafferty's green station wagon. Almost 100 miles away, Lafferty's brother, Alan, Brenda's husband, was at a job site working. According to those close to the case, it was outside of normal behavior for him to be working on a holiday. Now, I still find that odd that Alan chose to work on that specific day, a holiday. I pressed Dan multiple times about this and he never changed his story. Dan remains firm that Alan didn't know anything of their plans except for, he said, we did mention four months earlier that Brenda needed to be killed.
0: If you're enjoying this special bonus episode of Mapping Evil, make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're new to the series, make sure you go back and binge on season one for more of me and Mike talking mapping and murder. Now, back to the Lafferty Brothers.
1: It troubled me then, and it still does today. When interviewed after the murders, Allen told police that he and Brenda were intimate at 2.30 in the morning on the day of her death. He woke her up in the middle of the night to do so. He said it was out of character for them to do something like that. And then he left that morning to work some 70 miles to the north. At 1.30 in the afternoon, this is important, at 1.30 in the afternoon, he called Brenda and he asked her what she was wearing. He then asked to speak to the baby Erica for a moment, and after chatting, said goodbye. Whereas Ron and Dan Lafferty, accompanied by Carnes and Knapp, sat in Lafferty's childhood home, cutting the barrel off of that shotgun. You remember the shotgun that Ron said would be great for killing cops? Now Carnes, this guy who went by the nickname Chip, noted, that when they left Claudine's house, it was exactly 1.30 p.m. They started their drive toward Brenda's home. And as they drove, he recalled Dan asking Ron one more time if the throats of the two had to be slit. And again, wondered, why can't we just shoot them? Well, Ron was adamant that it had to be ritualistic and by the blade of his newly purchased knife. Well, as they pulled the green station wagon into alan lafferty's driveway ron turned and told nap and Carnes to stay in the car and keep a lookout ron grabbed the pearl handled knife as they exited the vehicle and he walked toward the front door they pounded on the door of the house but brenda never answered they returned to the vehicle and they left well as they drove away Ron suddenly snapped and he ordered NAP to turn the car around and go back, stating, quote, the hell with it. I feel like doing it. I feel good about it, close quote. Well, as they approached the front door, Brenda peered out and said, I can't let you in. Just then, Dan forced his way into the home and a violent struggle took place. Carnes and Knapp would later testify that they could hear Brenda screaming from the vehicle. They heard her yelling, I'll never do it again, as she pled for forgiveness from the brothers. These two associates to this crime testified also that whatever was going on in the house, they heard Brenda scream repeatedly, please don't hurt my baby. And then everything went quiet.
0: And those killers were arrested days later. You can read all about the crime and what happened next at mappingevil.com.au. Now, though, we're going to hear from the killer himself as he speaks about the murder. And just remember that one of the accomplices testified in court that he could hear the baby crying for her mother and he could hear Brenda pleading with the Lafferty's to not hurt her baby. But in this confession, you'll hear him describe how the baby was calm and that everything happened like it was supposed to. So... Let's hear from Dan Lafferty as he talks about what took
2: place on that terrible day. And I'm going to take the child's life. And he said, how are you going to do it? I said, just a minute, let me see what I feel. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to use a knife to take their lives. The baby was standing in the bed. And uh, I really believe that the baby thought that I was, uh, was her father because uh, her father and I have identical voices. We both had beards and such. So I began, uh, I had, I talked to her briefly. I said, I don't understand this completely. I I understand from what I'm being directed that you need to go back. I told her, I don't think she understood any of this, but it was important for, I feel I had to do this anyway. I said, I don't understand. Maybe we can talk about it sometime in the presence of God, I don't know. I says, but it, it's imperative, apparently, that you, be, uh, you leave this world. I didn't feel anything. I didn't hear anything, and I didn't turn back. I turned directly to the door and left. In fact, I was worried, as I explained to Mike and Greg, I was wor- a little bit worried later thinking, I wonder if I did what I was supposed to. I was worried that I maybe hadn't taken the child's life. But the thing that reassured me was I recalled that directly after that, I walked into the bathroom and washed the knife off. And that was what reassured me as I reflected on that before I saw pictures or anything. And then basically from there, I went in the kitchen, untied the cord from Brenda's neck and then I took her life. And then I turned to Ron and I said, okay, well, we can leave now. Well I think we did go, and, I did go and wash the knife off first and then basically we left.
1: Just minutes later, Ron and Dan walked back to the station wagon. Testimony says they were covered in blood. As they sat down, Ron spoke to Dan and said, hey, thanks for taking the baby. I couldn't have done that. Dan simply replied, no problem.
0: And Mikey's never apologised for the crimes because in his mind he did it because it was the right thing to do and he'd effectively been given permission by God.
1: Well, a few years after the murders, Dan and Ron's brother, Alan, the husband and father of the victims asked, why are you not asking for forgiveness or attempting to repent? Dan's response to his brother then and still today is that he has no need to repent. He has nothing to repent of and what he did, he was commanded to do. He speaks about these murders as if he's describing a routine activity He comfortably says that the murders have never haunted him or bothered him. He calls it a strange phenomenon. Now Dan's brother Ron died in prison a few years ago, but Dan doesn't think that he'll die in prison. (laughs) I think he will. If he does, and hopefully he will, he's perfectly happy in what he calls his monastery. That's what he calls his prison cell, a monastery. He believes, though, that the walls will eventually fall to the ground and that he'll emerge as the biblical prophet Elijah. Even a few short months ago when we visited, he still said he doesn't feel comfortable in saying he's Elijah, but he knows that he is. I hope that Dan Lafferty is never released from prison. I believe in accountability and holding people responsible for their behavior. Dan Lafferty and his brother are killers. They should never see the light of freedom. The most important thing in this story is not them. It's the victim and the victims in this case.
0: Mike, you spoke with Dan Lafferty recently for the first time in 10 years, and you talked to him about his 35 years in prison, how how it had gone and what he thinks now about the fact that he'll probably die in prison.
2: Been here 35 years now. Well, basically I'm just, I believe God brought me here. This is why I call it my monastery. I call the prison my monastery. And uh, this is where I got all my answers. Did 28 years in max. They finally let me out of max. I understand all the things that I needed to learn, which is why I came here.
1: I've never condoned his actions. He knows that. I've only tried to understand them. And then I fought for justice for the victims something that I continue to do today.
0: Now, I want to just take a moment here to share an interview with Ron and Dan Lafferty after their preliminary hearing, and I think this will give you a bit more insight into their mindset, and also I think it reveals a bit of a power struggle between the two brothers. While they were waiting for prosecution, unbelievably, Ron actually tried to murder Dan from the next jail cell. He later attempted to kill himself, which then led to decades of debate about whether he was competent to stand trial or not.
2: I really believe that John is a prophet of God and that he's a revelator and that there's been revelation given and there's been prophecies and warnings made throughout the uh, scriptures and being fulfilled now. And I think the warning that he gave uh, is very appropriate in warning all the people throughout this area and throughout the world, really. The times are upon us when there's going to be great calamities, and we need to repent and put our lives in one of the same revelations and directions of all the, the prophets, to repent.
1: That was the only thing of importance that happened
2: today in my concern. My revelation that I received that was used as Exhibit 1 today in the Court uh, does not command anyone to take the life of anyone, and it's been called my hit list, and in, in fact it is not my hit list. What does it say then? It names certain individuals and names... Among them Brenda and Eric the last Yes, week. as a matter of fact, yes, and uh, those individuals uh, God said we're in some way holding up the work, and and don't ask me to clarify it because I don't know the end result of it. Uh, You'll have to get on your knees and ask God.
1: (laughs) Well, Ron and Dan Lafferty were ultimately convicted for the murders of Brenda and Erica Lafferty. Ron received the death penalty. He died in prison. Dan received life without parole. But this is about preventing other kinds of similar crimes, and in my opinion, The Lafferty case will always be about the death of Erica and Brenda, the way in which they suffered at the hands of two psychopathic personality types. My work has never been about those two. And my final question for Dan is the one that I think many of you are wondering, did he ever have any remorse for what he did to Brenda and Erica?
2: That's a fair question but no. Just like I said before, I have not had any bad feelings about that. I'm confident that what I did was part of the plan. That's the easiest way to say it, I guess. And therefore, you know, my life was preserved. I thought I was going to be executed. In fact, I was a little disappointed when I wasn't because I was looking forward to getting my answers from God.
1: In the end, interviewing Dan Lafferty provided a lot of information that improved investigation techniques across the country More than 1,500 violent crime investigators heard firsthand how a ritual cult can begin and be sustained. We learned how important it is to understand the family dynamic at the time of the crime and, frankly, informative years. We learned how cult leaders give members perceived or actual positions of importance, and we learned how cults keep their members engaged with this us versus them mindset. Not only does it improve the chances that they won't stray from the cult's doctrine, but it creates a sense of elitism. We learned more about the strategies these cult leaders employ to recruit new members, and we gained further understanding as to how they justify breaking the law. Remember, Dan justified what would have been sexual abuse by saying his God wanted him to marry his 14-year-old daughter. He also justified murdering two individuals by saying he was only doing what God ordered. Both Lafferty's mitigated questions of mental health and they replaced it with comments of spiritual elitism. And their crimes teach us more about how a pack mentality can lead to further victimization this was so evident by their rabid enthusiasm as they committed the crimes against brenda and erica and then were so excitedly hunting for their next victim and don't forget that sawed-off shotgun they justified it was their mana from heaven to eliminate any police officer who stood in their way
0: And Mike, it's kind of interesting, you know, after hearing all these behind-the-scenes stories about these two brothers, that they were once so close and they thought they had these God-given roles in life and they were ordered to commit murder, but once they were inside, they never spoke to each other again.
1: In part, it had to do with the prison system that separates them from each other. But for Dan Lafferty, the reasons became much more compelling. You see, he related this story to me one evening. He said that as the two of them sat in the Utah County Jail awaiting trial, that Ron called Dan to the iron bars that separated the two jail cells. Ron confided in Dan that he had received revelation that he was supposed to kill Dan. <laughs> well, true to his wacky nature, Dan replied, Well, Ron, I'd have to pray about that. But how do you think you'd do it? Ron replied, i think i'd have to have you stand with your back to these bars pointing to those bars down the middle of the jail cells and he motioned his hands bringing dan toward him well not considering what might actually happen dan complied and he stood with his back at the separation suddenly ron threw a towel around his neck and he pulled violently against the bars dan fought for his life but he realized he was losing the battle. The last thing he recalled was blacking out and thinking, well, at least I'll get to go to heaven and get answers from God about whether killing Brenda and the baby was the right thing to do. I don't know about this. Well, the room went dark. Dan passed out and he assumed that he was dying. He thought to himself, at least I'm going to get this answer from God about whether or not it was the right thing to do. And he closed his eyes for what he believed would be the last time. Well, to his surprise, he woke up a little while later. And for him, something very revelatory happened. He opened his eyes and he saw Ron crying in the corner of his jail cell, assuming that he had murdered his brother. When Ron realized that Dan was alive, he rejoiced. (laughs) And then, after gaining his composure, Ron instructed Dan to place his back against the bars one more time so that he could complete the task of murdering him. (laughs) Well, Dan was outraged, and after screaming at Ron for some time, he committed that the two of them would never talk again, and they haven't. It was then that Dan confided in me that he really does think Ron is crazy. (laughs) Holy cow. Well, folks, you just can't make this stuff up. Dan then said, you know, the Bible teaches you to be forgiving, to turn the other cheek and to do seven times 70. (laughs) I asked Dan, so does that mean you forgave him? And he said, swearing blankety blank. No. (laughs) <laughs> that turn your other cheek doctrine is a bunch of BS
0: There you go, the, the arm of God has a potty mouth So Mike, as always, it's an absolute pleasure talking murder with you And as always, I realise how strange that sounds But thank you so much for this case update Taking us right inside the relationship with these brothers It has been fascinating and terrifying, as it always is
1: well, I'll tell you, Tori, the pleasure is mine. It's always great to catch up with you on one of these crimes, and I really look forward to talking about the next one.
0: Thanks, Mike. It's not often you get to say to people, I'll see you at the next crime scene.
1: Thanks, Tori.
0: If you've found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. This is a Baustead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepard, and Mike King. Sound design by Fig Media, with editing support from Kim Douglas, Gabby Patterson, Circa 3, and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Superscript, and our executive producers are Raquel Jackson and Alicia Kuperitsis. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.